My pleasure to be with you this morning as we wrap up our sermon series on being the church. Being the church is the church that fights the good fight, that finishes the race. Being the church is the church that says we will love the people in our community. We will reach out. We will do the hard thing. We will forgive. We will offer forgiveness when none is offered to us. Being the church means that we will love our families and lead them as God has set before us to lead. Being the church means that we will do things in a God-pleasing manner, that we will seek out that righteousness of God, that being the church means more than just coming to church, that being the church happens outside of these walls, that we don't just come in, we don't just sit, we don't just observe, we don't just listen, but being the church calls us to a higher standard, and that higher standard includes leaving here, going from here, speaking singing, loving, forgiving, giving people second chance after second chance. Can you imagine a world that would start to view Christians, especially in our community, as people that literally care People that would give their clothes off of their back for others that are in need. People that would open their homes and invite people in no matter how many dust bunnies are running around. Oh, I know what happens this week. Houses get the nth degree for cleaning. You say family's coming over and I'll be darned if aunt so-and-so is gonna make a comment this year about the dust bunnies running under the chairs. No, you see, being the church is still loving that aunt, even if she does comment. Woo, try that on for size this week, right? Some of you are excited about school being out. Others of you are going to take some vacation. How many of you, just a quick show of hands, are traveling home for Thanksgiving today? Just go raise your hands. So the rest of you are all hosting, is that correctly? <laughs> So, so only like 10 of us are leaving this week. So the rest of you are hosting, right? So raise your hand if you're preparing your house to have people over. All right, we'll say a special blessing for you at the end of the sermon. Absolutely. You see, being the church is the church that fights the good fight. Now, unfortunately, in our history, what the church has done in fighting the good fight is it's picked fights. The church has shoved its doctrine or its theology or even sometimes its practice in the face of other people and says, oh, this is the good fight. This is worth fighting for. We have got to keep whatever, right? The word of God pure, our doctrine pure, our, our theology pure. We gotta keep our practice pure. I mean, gosh, what if somebody were to come in to Monument, Colorado, look up online for a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, and walk into this building? Oh my gosh, they'd go, this is not Lutheran. Well, we just absolutely can't do that then, right? No, here's the point, right? Fighting the good fight is the good fight of faith in Jesus Christ. Make no bones about it. That is the fight of the church, is that there are people that have their faith in other things, in money, in name, in, in prestige, in their degrees, in their children's accomplishments. 
People around this community, in our world, constantly seek out validation. They are constantly seeking out appreciation, love, all of these kinds of things, but they're in the wrong thing. They fail to seek the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. And so, church, we have a responsibility to fight the good faith to fight for that right, to proclaim the gospel, to live it out, to be those ambassadors of Jesus Christ, to be his hands and feet. That's what we've been called to do, every single one of us. You see, when you go to someone's house this week for Thanksgiving, do you realize that you have been called, that you have been sent there to be Jesus with skin on, not to point out dust bunnies? Well, cleanliness is next to godliness. I was just trying to make sure the house was clean. Here's the problem. You're gonna spend a lot of time and energy on keeping the house clean, and yet your heart hasn't had any work. That's right. You're gonna have to prep for the interactions this week. To fight the good fight means that you are going to have to hold your tongue. It means that you are going to have to do whatever it takes to offer forgiveness again and again and again. And when the last piece of pecan pie is done, before you get to it, you're going to say, God bless this house and all who ate the pecan pie. And then you're going to ask God to soften your heart and probably go drive and buy a pecan pie. So we wrap up Timothy here. What Paul has for Timothy are a bunch of things. We're just gonna read through some of these verses. I want, you to, I want you to be familiar with it. I want you to hear it, right? We're gonna stop in a couple of the major sections because I wanna explain where Paul is coming up as he wraps up this letter. Remember that Timothy is a young pastor in a place where people are wanting to hear the word of God. They're thirsting for it. They're hungering for it, right? And, and so Timothy has a great audience. The problem is, is that they're importing things from the outside. And so they're having a hard time trusting and believing in solely the word of God. Verse three, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and, and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, even suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you. Have you heard of any um, uh, envious or malicious talk uh, in the last two weeks? I don't know if some of you check out this thing called the internet and... Um, pretty cool. People make comments all the time and they think everyone else is on their side. And when they make their comments, they expect you to agree with them. <laughs> it's, it's quite a fascinating thing. And when you disagree, uh, they attack you personally. <laughs> it's awesome for developing relationships. Okay, really God, please. And, I, and what I notice is, is that Christians are really great at this because what they come back with is, oh yeah, well, that's not what God says. And the person goes, well, well, well where did, um, 
Where'd God come into this? And, and you're an informed believer and you want to talk about your faith and, and faith does inform your decisions and, and political decisions and how you vote and how you live and how you, I mean, it should do that. But the way we bring it in, it's not winsome. It, not at all. And all we tend to do is invite further controversies and there's further envies and more quarrels. Yeah. I'm not saying don't stand up for the faith. Absolutely, stand up for the faith. Stand up for your faith in Jesus Christ. I, I, I get that. But, but folks, we've got to watch how we're talking because once the fight begins, ears turn off. So if it's possible with you, be at peace with everyone. Meaning, you Grease the skids. You calm down first. You change the situation and say, hey, let's talk about this differently. You see, being the church means that we go into this fight and we fight the good fight of faith. Now, where did Paul take this little left turn right here at the end? Let me reread it here. Uh, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Let me explain. In first century Palestine, what's happening here is Paul is, um, he's moving from town to town establishing churches. With Jesus' death, resurrection, okay, there's kind of a new movement and people are kind of excited about religion again. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter what religion, it's just that everyone's kind of excited about it. And there are a few unscrupulous people that are saying, that looks like a pretty good gig. I mean, what, do they work one day a week, right? You know, they get up there, they talk a little bit. People are like, ooh. Might quote some scripture. They kind of move on. I mean, and they seem to be getting paid. And, and they don't have anything else to do the whole rest of the week. I mean, it's not like they would do hard manual labor. I mean, ha. Huh. The pastor gig thing, it looks pretty good. And so Paul is warning Timothy, look, look, don't fall into where some of the brothers are. Some of the brothers are saying, hey, well, just give them a sermon. Just give them a service. It's all good. They're entertained. They'll come in. They'll leave. We'll see them six days later, and we just get paid for it. It's all good. And he says, no. Don't try to lead people in paths of godliness so that you can make them feel bad that you can get money out of it. See, the church historically has done really well with that too, right? Make you feel guilty, just enough, maybe you'll put a little bit more in the offering plate. See, this morning we're gonna check that out anyway. So the counters are back there counting the offering plates and if there's not enough in there, we're gonna, we're gonna come back right after the sermon. We're just gonna pass them again. And they'll count that and then by the time we're done with communion, if there's still not enough for the week, we're gonna pass them. No, now see, some of you are laughing. Some of you, you've been to churches like that. I know you have. No, that's not this church. But that's how some churches use godliness for financial gain. You see, when Mark said this morning, we'd like you to partner with us. That's a genuine request on our heart. That's a genuine request that says, God has given so generously to us in this community. Let's partner together. Let's put our 10% together. And there is no telling what we could do. Right? Roughly 400 families at Family of Christ. Median income in, the, in our zip code, 90. 
$5,000. I know not everyone makes it, but that's the median, right? So if we take the median and you do 10%, that's $9,500. And $9,500 times 400 families is $3.8 million. We just approved our budget a little over a million, three, four something last week. Do you realize you subtract from that $2.4 million in two years, we would pay off our debt and still keep growing. No telling the number of people that we could reach, the ministries we could launch, the churches we could plant. Now that is godliness that leads towards generosity. Verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We'll be content with that. This week is Thanksgiving, right? And I don't know about some of your family traditions. We have a tendency to sit around the table before, the, as the food is placed out, it's kind of cooling off a little bit. We hold hands and we share with one another the things we're thankful for for the previous year. And it's not just one thing. We kind of let the person talk all they want to talk. I mean, after a while, they start going, moving on to the next person. But there's a word here this morning that we heard that I think is a little bit different than thankfulness. Let me read it again. Verse six, godliness with contentment is great gain. Being content is a little bit different from being thankful. Again, I know in our community we're, we're fairly well off as a general speaking rule, right? We have some wants, we have some needs. Things aren't always paid for on time, right? I mean, there's challenges. But by and large, Thanksgiving, we talk about the things we're thankful for out of the abundance that we have. Can you imagine if this year, instead of saying, thanks God for all of the abundance, what if we said, God, this is what I'm content about. You haven't healed me from cancer but I do wake up praising your name. I'm content. God, I, I don't have the exact job that I want, but you know what? I, I can sure pay bills and I know that it brings you honor when I do my best. want to be content, but man, my heart looks at the neighbors and my, I see what they've gotten and, and Lord, make me appreciate what I do have and give me peace at what I don't. I mean, true contentment is godliness in action, Right? It is, I mean, to be content is to not wonder or worry or fear. To be content gives God honor and glory for what we have, not what we don't have. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. 
You know, this is an understanding, right? And he's talking about finance kinds of things here. And so this is, I want to help understand where Paul is talking to Timothy and saying, look, not only should you not be doing your job for monetary gain, don't, don't fall into that trap, okay? And, and basically in this section, he says it for everyone, not just pastors. Don't be doing your job just for monetary gain because you're going to be led down a road. You're going to make decisions devil's going to have his way. Some of you have been down that road. Some of you have picked courses and careers where all of a sudden you were worshiping the almighty dollar and it took all of your time, your energy, and your effort to manage your portfolio and your accounts and everything until you realized you were dying inside without contentment. So he's warning Timothy, hey, be content with what you have. And quite frankly, add to that, right? Realize you brought nothing into this world. You're not going to take anything out. So utilize what you have to bring my name, honor, and glory. Take care of your family. Absolutely. Bless others with the blessings that you've been given. Because when you die, you ain't taking it with you. You can be buried with it, but I'll guarantee you, I've been watching treasure hunter shows. They find it, <laughs> okay? They're going to dig your stuff up. <laughs> They're going to take it. Verse eight, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. I want to paint two pictures for you. On one hand, we have the theology of the cross. It's kind of the basis of our church's doctrine. Put succinctly, the theology of the cross says this, God uses pain and suffering to bring about grace. The theology of glory is what a lot of pastors and a lot of teachers today preach and teach. And the theology of glory, put succinctly and shortly, is this. If you're saved in Jesus, everything is better. God uses pain and suffering to bring about grace. If you believe in Jesus, your life will be better. Which one would you like to follow? Well, it's, a, it's like a no-brainer. When you put it that short, that succinct, you go, hello, theology of glory sounds a lot better. Here's the problem. It's a lie. It's a lie. Theology of glory says this, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. So what happens if you're not healed? I don't have enough faith. Theology of glory says, if you'll work on your marriage long enough and hard enough, it will definitely be rescued. And then if you get a divorce, what happens? Well, then you didn't what? Work hard enough and long enough. It's a lie. And theology of glory says, everything is gonna be, you're gonna be so happy and done. And why are Christians, some of, right? People that we see that struggle the most and they're not free from an illness and they're not free from debt and they're not free from guilt of their past. The theology of the cross says 
when you're down, I'll be there. And in the midst of your divorce, I will not abandon you. And while you are laying there with cancer and your body is ravaged, know that I will be there to make it brand new when I bring you home. The theology of the cross says, in the midst of pain, I am there. The theology of glory paints a great big picture. The theology of glory says, hey, if you want to be better, think better, act better, be better. And we all know, you can think all you want. You can try to act better all you want. And the old Adam in us, right, that sin that so easily entangles, comes up, rears its ugly head, and we still find ourselves the next morning going, dear Lord, forgive me for the same sin again. And here's the beauty of the theology of the cross. God says, forgive him. I forgive you. You can't outsend me. You can't outrun me. I've got you. This is This is what Paul's alluding to. You don't bring anything in. See, the theology of the cross says you don't even bring anything to God. You don't bring righteousness. You don't bring your resume. You don't bring any, I was confirmed. I was blah, blah, blah. No, you don't bring anything. God goes, I got you. And in the midst of your pain and suffering, I will always be there. This is why Paul's reminding Timothy, hang in there. And so in verse 11, but you, man of God, flee from all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. I mean, pursue those things, but keep them in perspective, right? Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is why we want you to let the people around you know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ because in the midst of their pain and suffering, you're going to be there. You don't fix anything. I was listening this last week to a podcast. It was top five things that parishioners want their pastors to know when they're grieving. Well, I'm not a perfect pastor, but I gotta tell you, that list I heard back in seminary, I knew every single one of them and I was thankful that in the midst of being with you when you've been grieving, the number one thing is, the number one thing people who are grieving want to hear from their pastors is silence. Shut up, Pastor Dyer. Because they just want to know that somebody's sitting with them. You see, that's Fighting the good fight. Fighting the good fight is holding on to faith, not conquering the illness. Fighting the good fight is being there when your little kid is having a nightmare and you simply pray God's peace and blessing over them. Fighting the good fight is being there as your loved one is dying, not abandoning them and being mad at God because God didn't heal them. Fighting the good fight is sticking it out though the world says cut and run. Can you imagine if Adam and Eve had not fought the good fight when Cain killed Abel? Can you imagine that pain of parents knowing that one of your children just took the life of the other? 
They fought the good fight of faith. When Abraham was challenged, sacrifice your son. And he fought the good fight of faith and he trusted God. Or Moses, right, who had been abandoned at birth because he would have been killed had he not been raised in the palace, murders a man, gets sent out into the wilds, gets gets called back, God goes, you're gonna lead my people, and he's going, me? I'm old, I can't talk. No, he fought the good fight of faith through the 10 plagues. No doubt he was questioning God all the time. Leading the people through the Red Sea out into the wilderness for 40 years. Oh my gosh, Moses fighting the good faith in the fight. And we go through the prophets. Elijah, just kill me now, God. I'm the only one that's speaking the truth. Just get it over with. No, fight the good fight. And Isaiah taking that message to the nations around Israel when the Israelites were saying, don't tell them about God's grace. They deserve to die. And Isaiah saying, no, God has sent me to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. Bring comfort, comfort. You see, that's fighting the good faith. To the disciples, to ultimately in Jesus Christ, right? Do you not see this? That God was willing to kill his own son. The pain and suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross was to take our sin upon himself, die our death. You see, that's how God works. He works through pain and suffering. Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he is willing to do whatever it takes to have you. Now that's a hard word to hear. And some of you are saying, okay, he has my attention. Can he please quit now? I know. But whether he says yes or no, I want you to know this. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And if my guess is right, the people of family of Christ who are built into the body of Christ, who have Christ living in them, who are the church of God will also be by your side. That's you. Hang in there, Paul says. To God be the honor and the might forever. That's our confession, right? That last bit of verse 16 says, to God be that honor and glory forever, amen. And when you see the word amen, it means let it be so. My prayer is that we would be the church, known for our love, our forgiveness, our reaching out, our unselfish attitudes, our generosity to the people around us, to our church, our appreciation of our leaders, our appreciation of our families, that we would give God all of that glory. Amen. And amen.